Hey guys, welcome to episode 169 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So before we get started, I just want to apologize. It seems like I, just like everybody else, have gotten sick between this weird time between Christmas and New Year's. So if I sound sick or a little stuffy, I just want to apologize at the beginning of the episode. It's okay. We'll get by. (laughs) I hope so. Um, We also want to thank you all so much for your well wishes and wishing us a Merry Christmas, whether it was on Patreon or on Instagram. The responses that we always get are always overwhelming. And we're just so grateful because of how sweet everybody is. And we want to say that we hope everybody had a great holiday season and that everyone's having a healthy and happy New Year's. So we just wanted to say thank you because it's always so sweet. Yes. Thank you, guys. And we can't wait to bring you more true crime in 2024. This is going to be our seventh year. It's pretty insane, actually, when you think about that it. We're st- that you guys still like us, thanks. <laughs> yeah, like we're still here doing this, and it's what we love to do, so it's always so great, you know? Yes, we love sharing these stories with you of these victims and their families, and we are always very grateful for all of your responses to to the work that we do, and... On that note, John, of course, is going to read some more reviews at the end, which I know he's already nervous about. Sweating already. But you have to give me a break because do you hear me? I sound like I do. And we are going to be thanking our new supporters that just recently joined Patreon. Okay. So, John, are you ready to hear something crazy? Always. Spartanburg County, South Carolina, sits in the northwest area of the state and its closest city is Greenville. Within the center of the county is the small town of Roebuck, which had, in the summer of 1995, when our case occurred, a population of about 1,700. It's a very rural area, so those 1,700 people had a lot of space to live in, but Roebuck still had that small town feel about it, as the population hovered around the same amount for decades. And as is the case in small towns, when tragedy strikes, especially a tragedy as great as murder, the reverberations of the crime are felt throughout the community for generations to come. The town of Roebuck was always very good to Ashley and Brandon Satterfield, as they knew what happened to their beloved mother. They always looked out for the two. For example, at the auto body shop that Ashley would take her car to, to get serviced at, They would always help her out. Noticing the treatment, one man asked his co-worker, Who's that? That's Dana Satterfield's girl. The name made him stop. He knew she had been murdered ten years prior. Did they ever solve it, he asked. No, never, was the reply. The man looked in at the beautiful 18-year-old blonde girl who was the spitting image of her mother. It made him feel bad and made him feel like he should finally talk about what really happened that night. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. On the night of Monday, July 31st, 1995, a woman whose real name is unknown had just completed a busy and exhausting day of work 
as a door-to-door cleaning supplies salesperson. It had taken her all day, but she had walked around to all the residences and businesses along Highway 221 in Roebuck, South Carolina. She then stood outside of a beauty salon. Earlier that day, she had spoken to the salon's owner, a warm 27-year-old woman named Dana. Dana had purchased one of her products, and the woman had been grateful to her. It was 8.30 p.m. She stood under the streetlight in front of the salon and waited for her ride to come pick her up. She noticed that the lights were still on in the salon. As she waited, she heard two large thumps come from within the salon and then saw the lights go out. The salon itself and where the woman stood was on a side street just off of Highway 221. The mobile home that had been converted into a salon sat behind a store that was front-facing the highway. So the salon was front-facing the back of this store. The saleswoman figured that Dana was finishing up for the night, and she was looking forward to speaking to the nice young woman again when she heard another loud noise come from the direction of the salon. Startled, she turned around in time to see a person jump out of the window of the salon and onto the grass in front of the trailer. Uh, That's odd. (laughs) Yeah, not what you would expect. The man got up and looked directly at the woman. They stood still and silent for a moment. And then he pulled his gray t-shirt up over his head and ran around towards the right of the store that was facing the highway. The saleswoman, thinking that the man had just robbed Dana, bravely took off running as well. Later, she would say that her intention was to flag someone down on the highway so they could get to help or get to a telephone. Because remember, it's 1995. So because she was running for help and not after the man, she chose to run around the other side of the store that was right in front of the salon. I mean, that's smart, though, too, because think about it. If you went the other way, there's the potentiality that that person's still over there. You never know. Right. So he runs around the right side and she runs around the left side of the store if you were to be looking at it from behind. The saleswoman and the intruder collide with each other in front of the store. What? And she comes face to face with him again. And... She's able to get a really good look at his face. And this startled the man because I don't think he expected anyone to be out there. And when he looked at this woman, he gets startled and he runs away in the opposite direction of where she is. That is crazy. Yeah, usually in these cases, we don't get introduced to the assailant first. Yeah. And here we have. So from there, she went to a nearby home and asked to use their phone. Thinking that a robbery had occurred, that's how she reported the incident to police. And you know what, too? That is probably the best uh, eyewitness account we've heard of in a while because not only did she see this person, well, she heard the noise, the lights went out. This person came out of there. She saw them. Jumps and then, out a window. Yeah, and then sees them out uh, around the building. Again. Again. And it's, I'm sure it's it's not like, uh, you know, she's close enough to actually make out uh, facial recognition. Yes. And it's the first time she saw them, she kind of only got an idea for who they were 
because they were further away. And yes, she was under a street light, but it was dark outside of the salon, especially because the lights had gone out. So she couldn't really give like a totally good description based off the first account. But when she comes face to face with this man in front of the store where there are lights, she's able to see him. I mean, that's how much better can you get? Right. Well, a Spartanburg County Sheriff's deputy responded to the suspected burglary call shortly thereafter. When he got there, he saw that the account that the woman had given about the crime had been correct. It appeared that someone had jumped out of the window that was situated in the middle of the trailer that was a rural hair salon. Not knowing what he was in for when he went inside, the deputy drew his weapon and flashlight because it was pitch black inside the trailer, and he entered into the structure. Inside, he found the main area of the salon to be undisturbed. He then made his way further inside and panned into the laundry room and bathroom area. As he walked further in that direction, which is considered the back of the salon, where most of the supplies were kept, he saw the laundry room. It was there in the bathroom area that the deputy found the body of Dana Satterfield. She was on the floor in a sitting position against the hot water heater. A red strap, which would later be determined to be the strap from her duffel bag, had one end fastened to the top of the water heater, while the other end had been tied around her neck and was keeping her in an upright position. Wow. That's pretty interesting because normally if someone's, you know, when you have that around your neck like that, you would think that they would be a long, like a larger distance to be hanging. You know what I mean? Well, what I think happened was that she was strangled with this strap and then to keep her upright because her body was posed they just attached it to the top of the hot water heater. The 27-year-old mother of two had been badly beaten. Both of her eyes were blackened, and she had bruising on her chest. It was apparent that she had fought desperately for her life. All over the floor surrounding her was blood. Blood was also spattered on the walls. It had come from the violent beating. Her pants and underwear were around her ankles, and her shirt and bra had been pulled up, exposing her breasts. The deputy rushed back to call in the homicide. They would need a crime scene team and detectives as soon as possible. This was definitely not a burglary. When the detectives arrived at the scene, they believed immediately that they were looking at a sexually motivated homicide. It appeared that the victim had been sexually assaulted and then posed in a position that was meant to humiliate her. On top of that evidence, it was clear that there had been no other motivation, like robbery, for instance, because the cash box and Dana's purse had been left undisturbed and out in a pretty obvious area. The investigative team began their crime scene analysis on the exterior of the building, taking pictures of the broken window from which the perpetrator jumped. They then worked their way inside. This was going to be quite the task, despite the fact that where the crime took place, it was a contained area. The killer obviously had been in the main area of the salon, but so had a lot of people. So fingerprinting the area was going to take a long time 
especially because they would have to eliminate all of her customers. Imagine that. Imagine like this is somewhere that you always go, you know, and then they're like, oh, we need you to come in. Uh, we got to rule you out as uh, potentially being a suspect for a murder. Yeah. A murder of someone you knew. Uh, of so wow. Knew, yeah. <laughs> that would actually scare me. Yeah. Because this is something that's happening in your community. It's, when things like this hit close to home, it's it's terrifying. And that is how the city of Roebuck reacts. They're they're horrified that something like this could have happened, especially to someone who had been such a staple of the community. Yeah, and I think that's a good point, too, because I think this might shed some light on it in the future, maybe, because there are a couple of clues here that you've pointed out that are kind of interesting. And one being that the location that this that this trailer, this converted trailer is in, it's it's near a street, near a highway. It's almost as if whoever did this would have to know of that location of that place and know its vulnerabilities. Yes. Somebody would definitely have to know because it's not a salon that you would see off of the highway. Like I said, you'd have to turn down a side street and know that it was located behind the store. So this definitely has to be somebody who knows the town well and isn't just someone who's driving through. I agree. It's definitely not someone who's like transient. It's it has to be someone in that town. Also, the one other thing I wanted to point out too was I find it interesting about the way in the manner that she was left there to be humiliated, like you said, because sometimes we see like remorse where they cover the victim or, you know, you know, along those lines. But why would you go to such an extreme to do that unless you were pissed off at her or wanted to make her look like a, a bad person? Right. You were trying to humiliate her in her last moments on this earth. So now we potentially dealing with someone that knows her now. So when the team finally worked their way to the back area where the crime took place, they were able to extract a fingerprint from on top of the hot water heater, close to where the duffel bag strap had been fastened to the heater. They thought this was going to be the print of their perp. Next, they wanted to tackle the blood at the scene. From the blood patterns that existed on the floor and on the walls, it was hard to determine whether or not the killer had been injured themselves. So they took a sample from every inch of blood they saw. The hope was that if the murderer had beat Dana with his fists, that maybe they could have broken skin, therefore potentially leaving something or some traces of their own blood or DNA behind. Now, this was 1995, and because DNA analysis was new, if you wanted to test it, you needed large quantities of it. So they tried to collect everything they possibly could. One of the forensic scientists at the scene believed that she saw semen in the pubic area of Dana's body as she was looking at the scene with a luminescent light. Because sexual assault was suspected, a rape kit would be performed on her body. But the technician, thinking that she saw semen in the pubic area, also made sure to comb the pubic area and keep the comb as evidence because of what she had seen. At this point in the investigation, as they worked on evidence collecting, Dana's husband arrived at the scene. He said that he had heard that the police were at Dana's salon. They pulled Michael aside and let him know that Dana had been found dead. Michael had a very strong physical reaction to hearing this news. 
he began to sob and then demanded that he be able to go in and see her. The deputies at the scene and the detectives had to physically hold him back from charging into the salon after they told him that he couldn't do so and that he wouldn't want to see her that way. After minutes of calming the man down, they began to question him about Dana. It was there at the scene that he admitted to them that they had recently separated and that they were not living together. This is an interesting detail that the detectives most definitely took note of. And it was not just Michael who had heard of the news that the police were at the salon. As Roebuck was a small town, all of Dana's family found out about the activity off of Highway 221. Dana's mother, Shylan Fowler, when she heard of the news, told interviewers that she prayed that her daughter was okay. You can imagine the devastation that she felt when she heard what her daughter had to endure in her final moments alive. The entire town had a reaction similar to that of Dana's family. They were devastated to learn what had happened to the 27-year-old mother of two. The entire town had a reaction similar to that of Dana's family. They were devastated to learn what had happened to the 27-year-old mother of two. She had, since opening the salon, become a staple of the community. Dana was known to have cared so much about making her customers feel happy and relaxed when they were in the salon. And there's also something that's so true, I think, about the relationship that exists between a hairdresser and their clients, right? I think it's one of the most interesting relationships because, like, when I think about my hairdresser, I see her more often than I see some of my friends, that's kind of funny, actually. Right? And then I share everything with her. I've known her since I was in college. I mean, that's a good point, though, too. Like, when I go to the to the barbershop, I mean, obviously, there's barbershop talk. But I know everything about my barber, just about. I mean, the, I literally know everything about his family because it's just the way it works out that way. Right. You just There's this weird intimacy that you have with your hairdresser, with your barber. And I think that that is so... Interesting because everyone in this community, because she had started this salon three years ago and everyone went there, they went there, their kids went there. So they felt so intimately close to Dana. So it truly was a loss to the entire community when she died. Right. And it the community felt like they had had someone stolen from them. So that's why this investigation and, and this murder like I said in the beginning in that intro, the reverberations through generations are truly felt and the community kind of takes on this this feel towards Dana, Dana's family, like her children that are eight and six at the time she's murdered. That's so sad. And they kind of always look out for them, which is very nice. That is. I mean, that really is to like that is truly right uh, being like taken care of by like a village of your community, you know, like it's kind of crazy when that happens, but it's, it's nice for them. You know, they need that support. Right. Cause that night the Fowlers and the Satterfields lost a daughter, a wife, a mother, a sister, and the community of Roebuck lost a, a great friend and not just lost, you know, when everyone heard about how she was brutalized, people were angry and they wanted answers and they wanted someone to pay for what had happened And they were also scared that the person that did this must be familiar with the community and is still on the loose. Right. I mean, he could possibly do this again. 
he's living among them. Yeah. Okay. I think this is a good place to take a break and talk about the sponsor of today's show. Okay. Let's get back to our story. So to the trained detectives who were tasked with finding these answers, they believed that the attack had been personal. She'd been beaten, raped, and strangled to death. That's something intimate. Another detail that tracked with this thought process was the fact that nothing had been taken. The murder was either sexually motivated or the perpetrator was enraged with the victim. But either way, it pointed to their perpetrator being someone who knew Dana rather than just being a random stranger. It was for this reason, and because it's normally protocol, when they want to, you know, they first have to clear Dana's close personal circle and family, and then they're going to work their way outwards, especially because this crime seems personally motivated. The good thing here, though, was the fact that they had a witness that had seen the murderer. I mean, that is the best piece of your puzzle here. That's incredible. I mean, that's what every detective would ever want. So it would be easy for them to rule people out of the physical crime. And there was another reason why they wanted to start with the family. Remember the forensic team had found that fingerprint on top of the hot water heater? Yeah. Well, it belonged to Michael Satterfield, her estranged husband. Oh, okay. Is it the husband? It always, they they always go there first. Well, especially when you're in an estranged relationship. That's true. As they worked to question the family, a forensic artist met with the woman who saw the attacker. The woman whose name has been reported both as Dana or Shirley. I'm not sure what her name is, but I do think it's good that the sheriff's department has protected her identity. Because I definitely would want to especially as you're going to learn more details about this case, I wouldn't want people to know that I was the person that saw that guy. Well, especially when that guy is not in custody, number one. And number two, it's a small town, and you don't know if there's more than one person involved. Right. And as you know from the intro, 10 years goes by. Yeah. And she's vulnerable for those 10 years because she's the only person who saw this person. I would not want my name out there. Nope. At all. Well, either way, she worked with the sketch artist for days, creating a sketch that resembled the man that she saw. When the sketch was finally produced, it reflected the image of a clean-shaven, young, attractive white male with brown hair with lighter pieces of blonde around the crown. And she said he was about 5'8 to 5'9, and he weighed about 180 pounds. Now, when it came to Dana's family, there was really only one person on the suspect list, Michael Satterfield. First, because usually, you know, a woman knows the person that kills her. Second, the couple are newly separated. And third, his fingerprint was found on top of the hot water heater. Detectives had learned from the family that Dana had met Mike after she split from her first husband, who she had married and had a baby with shortly after high school. And that would be her daughter. She would eventually marry Mike, and then they would have a child together, which is her son, Brandon. While the kids were young, Dana stayed home with them. Mike brought in the money from his heating and air conditioning company, and if needed, Dana would get odd jobs around town. But as the kids got older, Dana wanted to pursue her dreams of having something to call her own, 
And she always kind of worked on and off as a hairdresser. So she opens her own salon at the age of 24, just three years before her death. That's so sad because she's trying. she was trying so hard to like make something for herself and her family. And she did, and she created this amazing salon that everyone loved to be at. So Dana had always wanted to have her own salon. And the whole year before, she was very excited and planning out the layout of her salon. And when she was able to secure this trailer, it was everything she needed. Now, at this point, her and Michael were still married. They were still together. And Michael Satterfield told the police the same thing. He explained that his relationship with Dana had just run its course, but it was never unhappy. And he was never upset at the fact that Dana wanted to go live out her dreams of owning a salon. In fact, he'd been the one helping her get it ready and make it perfect. He was a plumber by trade, and he had gotten the bathroom ready, the washer and dryer, and he was the one who installed the hot water heater. So that's why his fingerprint was on the hot water heater. That makes sense now. And this was all confirmed by the man who helped Mike install everything. So that cleared Mike. Plus, he looked nothing like the man that the witness described. The witness described like this young guy with light hair, clean shaven, slim. Michael Satterfield was, he had very dark hair. He was older. He had facial hair. He was around 250. So he wouldn't have been able to so agilely jump out the window like this guy did, like she said. Right. And and also, if her testimony just proves that it's not just based on body structure and age and everything else, it's just no, there's no way that someone can get all of that wrong when she was face to face with that person. Twice. Twice. Yeah. So for all of those reasons, Michael Satterfield was cleared of the murder of his estranged wife. The next tip that investigators received, they thought was going to be very helpful. It was reported by a witness that a strange vehicle had been spotted near Dana's beauty salon. It was a blue Ford Bronco with a white strip around the middle of it. It was OJ. I'm just kidding. (laughs) You had to. I I did. You had to do that. Yeah. According to the witness on the night of Dana's murder, he saw that on Highway 221, just across from where Dana's salon was, there was a loading dock and that there was a late. 80s model Ford Bronco parked between two semi-trucks. It's always a Bronco. It it is. And it was a close jog from where the Bronco was parked to where the murder happened. So could this have been where the suspect was running off to? Because this was the direction that the witness saw him run to. Yeah, potentially. And it would make sense that they would need a way to get out of the area, right? So parking that... Bronco there would be perfect. Right, and not parking it in front of the salon, which would be obvious. Now, the witness that had seen the Bronco said that when he heard news, this is such a small town South Carolina thing, when he heard that there was police activity at Dana's salon, he thought, oh, let me drive past and see if that Bronco's still there. That's actually wild. Right, so he drives by and the Bronco wasn't there any longer. I mean, it could be, you know... A coincidence. I guess, but I see... But just to have the wherewithal to go over there and just check it out again, I mean, that's kind of... I mean, that's that's doesn't right. hurt. Now, this is not unusual to the sheriffs, right? 
they are the ones who have jurisdiction over these small towns, tight-knit communities. And it is true. If an unknown car is somewhere, people take notice. And they did in this case. Yeah. No, that's good. In small towns, you always have to have your head on a swivel. Or you do because you're bored. Or because you're bored. Or you're like Kay who likes to just be nosy. And, yeah, watch everybody. (laughs) So the detectives in this case, as you can imagine, are just like kind of incredibly frustrated because how perfect was it that someone saw this the commission of this crime go down? Yeah. And now they don't have a suspect. It's like (laughs) you dream for eyewitnesses like this woman and you can't find anybody. I know it's kind of it really is unfortunate, right? But another thing I was thinking about too, though, based on like the like where this took place in this trailer slash salon, for some reason I'm just kind of thinking about that whoever did this had to have been in there ahead of time before the violent attack took place. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, it's not like uh, someone just walked in after hours and did it. I'm thinking that whoever did this was already in there as she was closing up. Okay, so you're thinking maybe a customer. It's, I mean, it's possible, right? But, like, mm-hmm. I, I'm just saying because based on the time, you know, it was dark out. Yeah, it was 8.30. She was closing up, most likely. Mm-hmm. Could it have been, a, a, like, one of the last clients of the day? Or could it have been somebody that was hiding in the back? where nobody would be for a few hours beforehand. I think that um, the trailer is a little too small for that. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Okay. But I like what you're thinking. Well, thanks. You're welcome. I'm trying. You're trying. (laughs) So the detectives are going to add to the flyer, to the sketch of this unknown assailant, a picture of the Ford Bronco. So like they're kind of on the flyers together because they're really thinking this guy's car was the Bronco. And in a small town, that would be easy to spot out a Bronco matching that description. Right. Unless that truck now is being hidden somewhere. Well, a lot of leads come in about the white and blue Ford Bronco, but none really about the sketch of the man himself. There were three or four leads regarding blue and white Ford Broncos that the detectives followed up on that seemed to be viable leads. However, just one within the surrounding area of Roebuck itself. Like, others were in Spartanburg County, but this is the the closest one to Roebuck became this massive headache for the sheriff's department. This Bronco was registered to a woman named Marianne Vick. When the detectives went to speak to the owner of the car, she was quite upset. She said that she and her husband, Bruce, um, drove the the Bronco, and sometimes they would let their son use it, but they were all feeling extremely harassed. She said that whenever anyone in the family drove the car, everyone stared at them, and that they had been stopped numerous times by law enforcement. She told the detectives, just like she said, she told everybody who stopped them or questioned them, that she and her family had not been involved in these murders, and that they just wanted to be left alone. Now, if this is true, the detectives felt bad about the harassment, but they wanted to make sure first that this wasn't the Bronco. So they bring their witness that had seen the, the Bronco at between the two semi-trucks, and they ask him, you know, is this the same car you saw? And he said he didn't think it was the same vehicle. Because of this, the detectives themselves back off the Vicks, 
But that didn't mean the harassment stopped. Almost every day that people saw the car on the road, they would call in the plate number to the tip line that had been set up to help solve Dana's murder. Yeah, that's the hard part of it being in a small town, right? With the only car that matches or somewhat matches the description, right? Right. And and, and then also you have to think, you know, this poor family, no, nobody matches the description. Right. You know, like that. that's tough. That's really tough. So eventually Marianne Vick, in addition to complaining to the newspapers about the harassment, put a huge sign on the back of the Bronco that said, this is not the Bronco. Sheriff's Department has already cleared it. Don't waste your quarter. I mean, it sucks that you even have to do that. Yeah. You know, but at the end of the day, the court of public opinion is always way stronger sometimes than the actual law itself. It's true. You know. So while the detectives were working on following up on the hundreds of leads that came in through the tip line, they received the results from the DNA evidence that had been collected at the scene and the results of the rape kit that had been performed during Dana's autopsy. All the blood at the scene had belonged to Dana. And unfortunately, all of the internal swabs that had been performed during the rape kit came back negative for semen. But the forensic scientist who had been at the scene was not taking no for an answer. She knew that she had seen semen there when she was using the luminescent light. And she also said that it was unfortunate that the victim at the time had been menstruating. And this does happen in cases where if there's semen present internally, it gets diluted through the menstruation. So that might be why no semen was detected through the swabbing. But she said that she'd also seen some semen on the pubic area. Now, although this is not protocol or something that had she had ever seen been done, but she swabbed the comb that had been bagged as evidence that she had combed through the pubic hair with. Yeah, because she wanted to make sure. So that's why she did that with the comb. Yes. And she also could be thinking that maybe there wasn't um, like a physical rape, but that doesn't mean that like there wasn't semen present. So the senior criminalist with the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, SLED, they're known as, swabbed the comb. And guess what? They got a hit. Positive for semen. See, so she's really lucky that she did it that way on top of what she was doing with the comb because the comb is what hit. Yes. And I think this is really important because, A, now they have a DNA profile. They know that there's a presence of semen, so that is going to allow them to charge her murderer with sexual assault as well because semen doesn't just fall out and they are going to be able to when they find a suspect test this dna profile against them yep and then what's crazy is this is 1995 so your regular run-of-the-mill law enforcement are, are not going to necessarily be too privy about all of this dna stuff and the fact that she went to the crime scene is what saved it, is what saved this case and got the DNA. Because if she hadn't been there, seen it with the luminescent light and then combed through, if she hadn't been so thorough at the crime scene, they wouldn't have a DNA profile. 
I always find it incredible that sometimes in cases, it's just the one thing of like extra legwork that really brings it all together. And then sometimes you have cases where if they would have just done one thing extra, it would have brought the, you know, the, the, a cold case to not be one. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's wild how it's just these little details that make up the larger picture. Right. But they have to be careful with this sample because it is small. Yeah. So they can't just willy-nilly test it against people. Not in 1995. So unfortunately, this is where the case rests for 10 years. And that's hard to believe, right? We always say, well, if there was an eyewitness that saw the person, there was. If we know what kind of car they were driving, we do. If we had a DNA sample, we do. The case would just be solved. That's not always the case. They have everything. It is a little out of sorts to have all this information and and, and evidence, but yet we're not having anybody being charged with this. Or even really suspected. We don't have one suspect. I don't know. I mean, that is a little odd, but you know what? I guess sometimes when time does pass and technology gets a little bit better and things do develop, it's nice at least that we have this in a bag or a locker or some kind of storage so we could always go back, I guess. I mean. Right. And look at it. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean that Dana's case was not continuously investigated. It was. The detectives that were assigned the case always kept the brutal murder at the forefront of their minds. And they never let even a few months pass in those 10 years where they wouldn't go back to the case file or chase down another lead that came in. It was at the 10-year mark um, from which the investigation into Dana's death began that a new sheriff had been elected. One of the things that he had promised the people of Spartanburg County was that he would tackle the unsolved cases that existed in the county. Now, he's a very Southern man, and he could be seen in interviews saying, like with his very strong Southern accent, They're not cold. They're old. And like he's like, who are solving them? (laughs) And to make the public aware that he was thinking of their loved ones, and so were his officers, in the front like foyer of the sheriff's department, he hung up pictures of all of the the cold cases or people who had unsolved active cases. Yeah, I mean, I give them credit and the new sheriff uh, credit as well because it is a daunting task to make sure that these – cases stay relevant and fresh in the in the town's minds and you make the families feel heard and like you're still working on it and like, supported yeah it's a you lot know, they of want to feel support i mean they have family members that are missing or or have dead been murdered right and... so in an effort to work on these unsolved cases a new detective was assigned to dana's case he reviewed the case file and re-interviewed many people involved in the case This, of course, drummed up a lot of bad memories for the community, especially Dana's family. Dana's children were now 18 and 16. Their grandmother, Dana's mother, reflected that Dana's death had been devastating for her two children, but just in different ways. Her son, Brandon, who had been six at the time, just missed his mother so much. But her daughter, Ashley, took it so hard. At eight years old, she tried to take on everything. She felt the need to take over as the role of the woman of the house, to clean and take care of her brother 
and she was really strong during the day. But Shailene said that at night, Ashley would cry and just say she wanted her mother. The detective worked with the other detectives who had been first to take on Dana's case. And those detectives, even though they had the case wasn't necessarily a cold case, but they had to move on to other cases. Eventually, it was reassigned to a new detective who could put more resources into it. But those two men who had originally worked on the case built a very strong relationship with Dana's family. And they respected the fact that these detectives kind of never gave up on Dana's case. I mean, that that's what I'm saying. It, it's so nice to feel that support, you know? Right. And even though they were no longer assigned the case, they worked with the detective who had been. Right. And giving them probably any useful tips or oh, yeah. any knowledge maybe that they didn't know previous. And together they all built a list of suspects that hadn't been cleared or had criminal histories just so they could question them again. Like these men were willing to help. The men also requested the assistance of a retired FBI profiler, because now we're talking about 2005 we're in. The detectives were given a profile of the man that murdered Dana. He said that they were looking for a young local man who would have known Dana's routine. He most likely would have been a customer, like you said. Yeah. And he would have had sexual fantasies about her. Now, Dana was a very attractive woman, so this makes sense. He would have no more than a high school education, and after the crime, he would have either tried to leave the area or join the military. This would be really helpful once they were able to get a suspect to compare it to. So they began to question people about the men who were the patrons of Dana's salon. But while that was happening, the detectives were contacted by Dana's family. They were told that there was someone who might have information about Dana's murder that wanted to talk, but he was scared to come forward. He worried that if he did, that his life and his family's life would be in danger. Okay. The detectives, especially Detective Rick Gregory, who had been working with the family for 10 years now, he's the one who had been originally assigned to the case, talked to the family about the importance of this witness speaking to them. He said, we have to hear this information from him and not from you, because if it's from you, it's hearsay, it's secondhand. And he was able to explain this to the family and the family understood. And it took them a while, but they finally convinced this witness to speak to the detectives. Okay, he, he must, this person must know something good that yeah. would put us in the right direction. If he's that afraid for his family and himself, he knows something big. Yes. The two detectives, Gregory and the new detective, working the cold case, met with Dana's parents and this mystery witness, whose name was Michael Pace. Pace had waited 10 years to come forward. The man was a 27-year-old mechanic that worked at the same shop that Dana's daughter, Ashley, had her car serviced. Okay. He said that he chose to come forward because seeing Dana's family, especially her daughter, knowing full well what most likely happened to her mother and who did it, and the fact that this man had basically gotten away with it upset him. You know, he at this point in his life had a family of his own. 
So he couldn't imagine that happening to like his wife, say. So he said he felt like he he had to tell Dana's family. But he said he wasn't comfortable making a formal statement yet because he was still scared. So the detectives agree with him and they say, listen, we won't take this down as a formal statement. Your name's never going to come out, but share with us unofficially. And he agrees to. And this man says this has been weighing on him for a decade at this point. So I can imagine it felt good to get it off of his chest. He said that 10 years ago, on the night of the murder, he had been working at a local bowling alley, Hidden Hills Lanes. He was just about to get off work when he ran into his friend in the canteen area who was having something to eat and drink. He decided to sit down with his friend and ask him if he could have a ride home. As soon as Pace sat down, his friend started talking about a hairdresser by the name of Dana. He said she lived in Roebuck, and she was older than him, but he thought she was beautiful. And he had learned that she and her husband had just split up. Wow, okay. So he thought his friend was just talking, so he didn't really think anything of it. The two then got into his white and blue Ford Bronco, and they started driving home. On the way, he started talking about this woman, Dana, again. He went into detail about the sexual things that he wanted to do to her. Pace said that he didn't take what his friend was saying seriously because he was just joking like, I don't know, guys do. He said it was, it was all talk. They were just kids, just 17 years old. Well, because he thought he was joking, Pace laughed and said, Something like, yeah, right, man. Like, like you'll have a chance with this woman, basically. And his friend didn't find this funny at all. In fact, he got really mad at Pace. And they basically stopped talking. Finally, they reached Pace's house. And this friend told him that he was going to get his hair cut. But because it was really late, Pace said to him, now, isn't that, isn't it late for that? And his friend said, I'm going to Dana's. And then left. Okay, so this could be the person. Yep. I mean, is given pretty much a rundown of what he uh, before the commission of the crime. Right. Well, the next time Pace saw this friend, it was several days later at a pool hall. He said that when he saw him that night, he seemed like a different person. He said to Pace, "I'm fixing to go into the Marines." The profiler was right, just like the FBI said. Yeah, because it's kind of pointing out that this person's young enough to uh, join the military right away. Well, and and then get the hell out of Dodge. Yeah, right. And then the threat came. He said, something is about to come out real soon. And when Pace asked what he was talking about, his friend said, you'll know and you better not say anything or I'll kill you. And days later, Pace found out that in Roebuck, a hairdresser named Dana had been murdered. Michael Pace said he thought about this for a long time, that he tried to reach out to law enforcement in his own way over the years. He called the tip line, and he even called Crime Stoppers once anonymously. He had called in the blue and white Ford Bronco, the Ford Bronco that belonged to Marianne and Bruce Vick. Wait, what? His friend had been their teenage son, Jonathan Vick. No way. 
Yep. No, oh my God. So the whole time this truck has been in town, everyone's calling in about it. But And that is it. Yeah, and then they have the sign on the back. Yeah, yeah. Don't, don't waste your quarter. You sure about that? You sure about that? Yeah. Wow. So that's the thing. Like, even though he was calling in the plate number of this car, it didn't matter because everyone was calling it in and it technically had been cleared. And at the time, Jonathan Vick was underage and Marianne and Bruce never let police question him. So they never saw Jonathan Vick. Because they would have said, oh, this kid, this kid looks just like the sketch. Oh, wow. Like, I don't want to say it's an oversight because, I mean, it, it, I, I feel like it's a little muddy there. But, I mean, imagine that. I mean, I, but then again, at the same time, you're dealing with a small town and how many Broncos are in a town? Right. It had <sighs> been the Bronco yeah. all along. That wow. is crazy. What a twist to this. Mm-hmm. Well, this is hard now. Because could this have just been talk, right? Could Jonathan Vick just have been saying you wanted to do this? A coincidence. They needed Michael Pace to sign a sworn statement to everything he confessed to because then they could get a warrant for Jonathan Vick's DNA. I mean, that's true, too, because it it could easily be the other way around. And because he doesn't want to lose his family. Think about that. What a twist that would be is if he's coming forward and saying that um, uh, Vic is the one that did this and he's using uh, him as a, a fall guy because now he knows he has a family and a wife and everything. He does, and he wants to clear his conscience. Well, there's you know, a could lot. Be. You got you to gotta make sure you go through everything to find that out. Right now, I know you're probably feeling a particular way too about Michael Pace and like him not coming forward, but just wait. And then I think it's more clear as to why Michael Pace was scared to come forward. Okay. There's more. There's more. There's more. So Michael Pace was terrified for his family. And we'll learn more as to why he could be. And it's not just because he knows that he murdered Dana. The detectives had to find another way to get probable cause. Another reason why Jonathan Vick would come up in the investigation again. Like, what could they do? So they want to learn first a little bit more about him. So they look into the life of Jonathan Vick, and they contact people who existed on the periphery of it. One of those people was a woman whom he had a child with five years earlier. She told them that Jonathan Vick was an extremely violent person and that their relationship had been toxic and physically abusive. He wanted to control every aspect of her life, and when he felt he was losing control, that was when he would hurt her. Once he held her down in a bathtub and tried to strangle her. He would beat her, and once he wrapped a strap around her neck and dragged her around the room with it. Does that sound familiar? It does. She was lucky to get out of that relationship alive. When investigators told her why they were there, she revealed to them that once he had driven her past a beauty salon just off of Highway 221, and he told her, the police are trying to pin a murder on me that happened here. And if you ever try to leave, you'll end up dead just like that woman did. The testimony of this girlfriend was going to help them tremendously. It showed a pattern of violence against women. 
Now, the next thing that the detectives are going to find out, they find through speaking with people who knew Jonathan Vick, but also speaking with other detectives within the sheriff's station. Another woman they would have loved to speak with was Jonathan Vick's ex-fiance, Heather Sellers. But they would not be able to because Heather Sellers was a missing person. No. Now this is why Michael Pace is terrified of coming forward. Okay, so he knows even more. and No, he doesn't know more. He just knows what he's capable of because he knows he murdered Dana. Right, so then he would just kind of assume. And now he's violent to all of his girlfriends. You think that doesn't get around the county, right? Yeah. And his ex-fiance's missing. How did they not think, though, that... Make this connection? Yeah, I mean, your fiance is missing, and I, I mean, I'm just saying, I feel like... If you were, if they thought maybe that you had some involvement in the disappearance of somebody else, then the likelihood of you maybe being the person mm-hmm. that killed this person in the same town would be. I so, agree. You know, when Heather Sellers goes missing in late 2002, they should have instantly made the connection between Jonathan Vick and his family's association with the Dana Satterfield case. So let me get into, especially because Heather Sellers. Looks just like Dana Satterfield. It's like, like, like a victimology. Yep. Yeah. Well, Heather Sellers was 20 at the time she was last seen by her grandmother, who dropped her off at a Waffle House in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Now, that was on September 24th, 2002. And that's three years before Michael Pace comes forward with his story. Three years. Heather had been carrying with her a bag at the time that contained her uniform and one change of clothes. The plan had been for her to stay at her aunt's that night, but before she was there, she was going to go out with her boyfriend, Jonathan Vick. The couple had been engaged but broke the engagement off, but were kind of seeing each other again. It was a an abusive relationship. That's what sellers father, brothers maintain that Vic was this very bizarre guy. He was a manipulator, a liar. Like he made up these like grandiose stories about his life that just couldn't be true. And according to Vic, because he was questioned about this, obviously, the couple went to two bars that night, but then got into an argument. He said that Sellers asked him to drop her off at a bar. He did, and then he claimed he just never saw her again. I mean, what? that's a very weak alibi for someone that you uh, are with. Imagine yeah. that, you know, uh, oh, this is your girlfriend, someone that you were engaged to be married to, and then... And had a bad relationship yeah, with. I mean, this is wild. Her family reported her missing when she never came home and failed to pick up her final check for $81 from the Waffle House. Heather's family has said that Jonathan was very physically abusive towards Heather, although she never reported it to police, like most domestic violence victims don't. Yeah, but how would that, from the family's testimony about the abuse that she, the, that she suffered, not get to police and how, how that would not trigger— But it did. There was just no evidence because nothing of Heather has ever been found and still to this day has never been found. I mean, I guess that's its own separate case. That's crazy. Yeah. 
if there's no evidence, there's nothing to tie him to it. It's all circumstantial. But he would be the closest person to a missing person. Yeah. And that's why I'm like, that is just weird to me. How infuriating that you can't do anything. Right. If you're the family, you're like, okay, this person definitely had to have some involvement or knows something about my daughter's disappearance. There is so much, so many cases that exist like that in this world where people know who did it. But if there's no body, there's no evidence, there's nothing. It's sad. And that's the case of Heather Sellers. And that's where it stands today, too. That is mind-blowing. Well, Jonathan Vick was considered a person of interest in Sellers' disappearance, but nothing could ever be proven. Well, it was about time that they spoke to Jonathan Vick, but he proved to be elusive. It took the sheriff's department weeks to track down where he had been living. When they got his phone number, the detective told him that he had been assigned to Dana's cold case and that he was just going through every file and following up with everyone about information that they may remember. And he wanted to, like, acclimate himself to Vic. So he said, you know, I apologize because I'm reading through these files and I'm seeing that your family was harassed a bit. But you know what? If you would just come down, take a DNA test, we could put it all to rest. And he agreed to come to the station. Wow. Okay. All right, maybe it's a little easier than we thought. Well, the day that he promised to show up, he never did. The detectives knew that Jonathan Vick was never going to willingly give them a DNA sample. So they went back to Michael Pace. And they explained to him that if he didn't come forward, they would never be able to get a court order for his DNA. And they knew that was the only way they were going to get it. They told him, about Dana's family, which he didn't have to know about because he spoke to them a lot, especially after he came forward. They also told him about Heather Sellers and all the other women that he hurt. And Pace was familiar with this a little bit. And he said, you could stop him from hurting anyone else if you come forward. It's more dangerous that he's out there for you and your family than if he's behind bars. Right, because it's a loose end if you think about it for him. Right. This person knows what you did. Well, it took some convincing, but finally he agreed to sign a sworn statement. Good. Two weeks after Pace gives his sworn statement, they are at Jonathan Vick's house collecting a DNA sample. It was a match. An arrest warrant was issued And 10 years after he began the investigation, the first detective who arrived at the crime scene was able to arrest Jonathan Vick and tell Dana's family that their daughter and mother's killer was finally going to be brought to justice. I'm so happy about that. Yeah. During his questioning, Vick was arrogant and evasive. He said he didn't know who Dana was and when they asked him about Heather Sellers, he just smiled. This guy is evil. He's evil. Evil. The trial for Jonathan Vick for the kidnapping, murder, and sexual assault of Dana Fowler Satterfield began in November of 2006. The trailer in which the salon was once housed had since been moved away by the owner. So the prosecution paid for a life-size replica to be 
um, built in the courtroom. Really? So they could show what the crime scene looked like because they thought it was so important to show how brutal the crime scene was and the way that he left the victim. Yeah. I mean, obviously they get that imagery in their head. They'll get the best possible picture. Exactly. Of what kind of monster he is. And he is. And the prosecution did a good job presenting him to be an angry, abusive man who had a history of battering women. And he did. And, you know, his parents must have known And it's not just that they protected him in saying, oh, this isn't the Bronco. You put a friggin' sign up and you talk to the newspaper. That's disgusting. Yeah, like I don't know what level. You don't have any thought that your son did it? No, I understand what you're saying. I just don't know what level of like knowledge they might have had, but they must have had known something like, oh, maybe like, for example, maybe they knew that they their kid did take the truck out that night or did yeah, something they had like they to had to known. know of something. Yeah. And they knew because they didn't allow him to talk to police. Yeah, it's a bit odd. Yeah. So he went back to Dana's salon that night to ask her out on a date. And the district attorney surmised that Dana did What any 27-year-old woman would do if a 17-year-old boy asked her out. She would chuckle and tell him no, that she didn't think it was a good idea. But the laugh or the rejection must have enraged him. Remember, he even got mad at his friend for laughing. And it made him feel inadequate. And when Jonathan Vick loses control, in the past he has shown that he gets extremely violent towards women. And that's when he attacked her, beating her, as he would later do to all of his other girlfriends, and strangling her, as he had also done. They explained only that Jonathan had sexually assaulted Dana because physical penetration couldn't be proven, um, but semen was present. Another piece of evidence that was indicative of sexual assault was the removal of her clothing and the presence of semen in her pubic area. And there was intent there, right? Because the prosecution made a point of saying, like I said earlier, it's where I got the line from, semen doesn't just fall out. Right. There's intent. Yeah. So throughout the trial, Dana's mother said that Jonathan Vick was exactly what she expected him to be. Heartless and arrogant and... His lack of emotion was certainly on display for the jury to witness. The trial ended after four days, and everyone only barely got to leave the courthouse when the jury came back with a verdict. It took them 15 minutes. Yeah, I I figured as much. He was guilty of kidnapping, criminal sexual conduct, and rape in the course of a murder, as well as first-degree murder. Dana's family was happy with the verdict, And her daughter could be seen crying in the arms of her stepfather, Michael Satterfield. Jonathan was not eligible for the death penalty because he had been 17 at the time of the crime. He was sentenced to life in prison with the eligibility for parole on October 24th, 2035. However, while in holding for the trial for what he did to Dana, He was given an additional three years for the assault of a correctional officer and threatening the life of another. So even if he gets parole, just say he does. In 35, he's going to have to serve those three years after that parole. 
I see. So. I mean. <laughs> I can't imagine him getting parole. No, I can't either. Because, I mean, it, it seems like if he was to be let out, he probably would repeat and continue to do what he has done here. Right. Because after he did what he did to Dana, he abused other girlfriends. And he's still a suspect in the disappearance of Heather Sellers, which we don't have answers for. And he definitely committed that crime. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, you're the last person, uh, you know, uh, you know, you're in a, a relationship sorry, with this person. I'm sorry, he allegedly definitely <laughs> committed that crime. <laughs> yeah, no, but I get what you're saying, though. I mean, I mean, it seems like there's no evidence to tie him to it directly. But I mean, there are some things there. So until we have more, we can't really do anything with that. But I will say that I'm glad that he is locked away for life right now because this person is a danger to any to any woman that he lives in a town around. <laughs> yeah, anyone he comes into contact, really. Yeah, seriously, it's and it's terrible. And I, I'll say this, you know, you know, uh, hopefully his mom's saving all his quarters because he's going to need them for uh, his phone calls <laughs> yeah. and his conversations. I like. He'll that. also need that in his commissary as well. Yeah, that's so sad. Save your quarters. Isn't that terrible? Terrible. Oh, this was a rough case to cover. I'm glad the family got justice in the end, but I'm sad for the family of Heather Sellers, who they don't have answers, but they know or they think they know who did it. Yeah. I, you know what? We've had uh, a long time ago, we had a case where uh, it was kind of the outcome where someone was uh, potentially involved in something else, but they were locked away for something that they found evidence on. So I think I said it there as well. I'll say it again, even though it's not true justice uh, for that specific disappearance, but at least the other family like can kind of feel a little bit better knowing that he's locked away and can't hurt anyone else. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that family feels that he is responsible. And if that's the case, at least he's locked away right now. Right. Exactly. You know, I mean, and at this point, that's probably the best that's going to get right now. So I, if I was a family, I'd feel a little bit better with that. But obviously, there's still a hole there, you know. So I feel always so bad for these families. I know. Okay, guys, we hope you enjoyed that case. That's a, a bit of a difficult one, but I think it's important to bring it to the public's attention because not only does Dana's story need to be told but so does heather's so yeah for sure hopefully hopefully soon they could maybe find some evidence in that connection but i don't think they'd be able to find anything unless they found her body definitely but at this point it's 21 years ago it's crazy you got me fired up you got me fired up in the last day before the new year <laughs> <laughs> okay well before we go we're gonna do two things first john's gonna read some reviews okay and then we are going to thank our new members on patreon and if you want ad-free episodes or two bonus episodes a month you should join our patreon page and be a part of that awesome true crime family that we have there because they are amazing people and the conversations are always so great surrounding our episodes that we release on the regular and our Patreon episodes. So, John, are you ready? There's some long ones today. I, I know. You see them? <laughs> I, I did see. I, I read most of them already, um, <laughs> I believe. So Okay. So we got some international ones. Ooh. All right. Here we go. Tenille. Uh, thank you. All right. Tenille. <laughs> Sorry, Tenille. Tenille, Australia. 10 out of 10. Favorite. <clears throat> Five stars. I listen to at least 50 different podcasts almost 24-7. 
when I'm working, driving, falling asleep, shopping, you name it. And this one is officially my favorite of all time. And that's a hard feat. I am fairly passionate about going west, true crime garage, true crime all the time, unsolved crime lines, Generation Y, and Morbid. Yet I am so excited to get my new episode from you guys. And yes, I'm a patron. Yeah, she's an amazing Patreon supporter. She's always so nice with her comments. (laughs) Uh, Well done. I love the format, content, and I appreciate the effort you both go to for conversation, research, discussion, and storytelling. Oh my God, Kay. Unique cases, love the long ones, and flawless research. John, you add awesome value and participation, and you join the dots so well, and you crack me up. You both have a nice balance, and I respect that. I also appreciate the way you are equal, fair, and respectful and supportive of all parties, yet aren't afraid to share opinions. Well done. I'm in forever, and I'd love more, and I'd pay for more. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Neil from Australia. We appreciate it. That's your fave, Australia. Uh, It is, and I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. One day we'll go to Australia. One day. All right, so the next one is my new way to start my mornings. So five stars. Thank you. Um, I've been listening to true crime podcast for years. I'm one of those crazy folks that has it playing while I work so I can focus better. You know what? I don't think you're crazy because I do the same things and I listen to a lot of crazy podcasts about a lot of different topics. So I get it. I actually started backwards and listened to the ones from 2023 and then 22 and then 21 and so on. I thought, hey, I'll give this one a try. <laughs> oh, God. So as our audio got worse and yeah, worse. Right? <laughs> and needless to say, I've been hooked. I haven't listened to any other p- podcast since. I found John and Kay, and I'm almost finished with all the ones from 2019. So it's bittersweet realizing I'll be done with all the episodes soon, and I won't. I will actually have to wait two weeks for new episodes. Oh, no. Trust me. I, I hear you. We wish we could do it every week. We really do. Yeah. This will probably be my first time ever signing off for Patreon because I absolutely want to hear more. This is also my first time leaving a review for a podcast because I want more people to have the same experience as me. Oh, that's so nice. I appreciate that. Yeah, I really do. I, I Who love. Who is it from? Oh, uh, this is uh, Miss Jordan from NC. So nice. I'm guessing North Carolina. Um, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. All right. So we have another one here. Uh, another two, actually. Um, okay. My favorite true crime podcast. I found your podcast about six months ago and have already binged every episode. Hey. <laughs> definitely uh, definitely give it a listen, but be prepared to be addicted. Oh, that's so nice. Oh, that's so nice of you. Thank you. That is... Uh... <laughs> Do you want me to say? Uh, yeah, I'm very bad with the... <laughs> I don't want to botch it up. John, it's Sarah England. <laughs> okay. Sarah England. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, okay. I'm bad, guys. I'm so sorry. All right. I'm You're gonna, nervous. I'm so nervous. Yeah. Uh, okay. All right. Sorry. Okay. Next one. Love it. Five stars. I normally don't like these duo crime things because they sound rehearsed, but this is truly like a couple discussing crazy to- a crazy topic. I get full of suspense when my with my husband. Definitely wish we were neighbors. Well, I wish we were neighbors, too. Us, too. Let my kids play with the, with the crime family kids. Yay, thank you. That is funny. That is so funny. All right, John. Do you feel you feel better? You want to do one more? Do you I'll think do, you do it? one more. Yeah, I think okay. I'll, I'll do this one over here. Okay. Fave podcast. Five stars. 
I get so excited when I see there's a new True Crime Couple episode. Kay and John keep it relevant and are amazing storytellers. I listen at the gym, at work, while, I clean, while I'm cleaning, etc. Kay is amazing at researching podcasts and, co- and covers cases I haven't heard, of, heard about before. John is so funny, and I agree with all of his points he makes. Together, they are amazing. 1,000 out of 10. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> well, thank you. I really appreciate that, guys. I really do. Thank you so Johnny did good. You're getting so good at this. You know what's the craziest thing? And I think it's actually because I'm not accustomed to reading things out loud like that. Yeah. Because my mouth is not connected to my brain. I'm reading it so fast <laughs> that I can't speak it. I don't know what's wrong with me. But yeah, I never, you know, I you're don't t- do that. Your practice makes perfect. I guess so. Well, before we go, we just want to say thank you to our new Patreon supporters. Battery, Connie Given, Julia McIntyre. Levita Pankritz, Madison Poston, Hannah Schumacher, Lisa Geese, Dana Long, Autumn Smith, Eloise Taylor, Trisha Blakely, Carissa Madeira, Megan Johnson Day, Yvonne Robinson, Pamela Murphy, Amy Kate, Melissa Blanco, Kiara, Anise Huddle, The Arctic Circle, Tasha Hart, Denise, Ash Satish Kumar, Kathy Brown, Annie Lang, Pat Ward, Orca Put, D. Miller upped her pledge and joined for the year. Thank you so much, D. And Kayla. And that is going to bring this episode to an end, the last one for the year. We hope you guys have a happy and healthy new year. And remember, don't park next to vans. Bye, guys. Bye.